Let's face it. Adult socialization revolves around alcohol. Whether it's mimosas at brunch with your friend, wine at happy hour with your colleagues, or even just drinking your favorite drink at home, alcohol is a staple in adulthood. But have you ever thought to yourself, I think I might drink too much? Or have you ever felt uncomfortable about how much you've spent at the bar or how you feel the next day after drinking? Drinking alcohol can have sweeping effects on both our money and our mental health. In this episode, hear Tani Lara's story of getting sober, spending 100K on alcohol, and why you don't have to hit rock bottom to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Tani Lara. Tani is an NYC-based writer, public speaker, and event producer who's passionate about smashing stigmas associated with both sexuality and sobriety. Juicy! She's recently been dubbed the Sober Sexpert by Ruby Warrington. Her words have been published in Playboy, Huffington Post, The Temper, Men's Health, and more. In addition to writing and public speaking, she's the founder of the Readings on Recovery Reading Series and Sobriety Party and co-host of Recovery Rocks podcast with Lisa Smith. Welcome to the show, Tani. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Of course. I'm super excited to chat with you today about something that I think a lot of people are curious about, a lot of people are dealing with, and that is about alcohol. I know in our 20s and 30s, alcohol is often used as a social lubricant, kind of the way that we bond. And then, you know, I think that for some people, it turns into an addiction, something that is bigger than themselves, something that is no longer manageable. And I know that you are in recovery. And so I would love to just hear about your recovery story. And when did you realize that alcohol had become a problem? And what did you do to get help? Well, you're so right with you saying that starts, you know, 20s and 30s as it's just like this fun social thing to do, because that's exactly how it was for me. I mean, it started a little earlier, like teen years, but it was, you know, once I got older and I became a bartender and lived that life, it was, I didn't question my relationship to alcohol because I was drinking the same way that all my friends were drinking. You know, I was in this boozy bubble, (laughs) if you will. And it took me actually getting out of that industry to really look at my life and hang out with people that are not bartenders, like going out with people that were not partying all the time, just having one drink. I was like, what's wrong with these people? Why aren't they taking these shots I just bought? (laughs) Yeah, You know, like it was my rock bottom isn't very dramatic. And I kind of wish it was, (laughs) but it was more of those kind of stories where it's like, 
I started to put things together and realize I don't drink like normal people can drink. And one night I was at a pub with some friends and I realized like, you know, I moved to New York City to write. I'm not writing. I don't have enough, but I, you know, I don't have enough time to write. I'm so busy. But then I left the the pub and I was like, but I've just drank for four hours talking about how I don't have time to write. Like, I was like, maybe there's some sort of correlation here. So I I like to share that story because I want to break this common trope that like you have to lose everything to stop drinking. Like I didn't lose anything. I was, you know, quote, fine. I realized that it was causing problems in my daily life. And it as soon as I got it out of my life, everything started to get better. I love that you're sharing that part because I think that we often think that if we have to make a big change in our life, especially if that means giving up alcohol, that we have to hit rock bottom, we have to lose everything. And that has to be our big wake up call when in reality, we can change things at any time. And if something's no longer working for us, we don't have to wait till we get to that point where we can start reevaluating things. And just recently, I know I told you this via email, I'm reevaluating my relationship with alcohol as well, because, you know, yeah, during my 20s and 30s, it's been the way to kind of cope and have friends and go out. And I consider myself a cocktail connoisseur and a wine lover and, you know, an Epicurean and, and loving all of that stuff. But I realize that sometimes it's hard for me to stop at just one or even stop at just two. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gretchen Rubin, but she has these things called the four tendencies, which is really about kind of how your behavior is, whether you're an abstainer or a moderator. And I'm an abstainer, which means that it is easier for me to completely abstain than it is to just have one glass of wine. Like if I'm going to have a glass of wine, I'm definitely having two. <laughs> like that's just the way I am. It's easier for me to abstain yeah. than it is to just commit to moderating. Whereas moderators, they're like, oh yeah, I just like to know that I have the option. I can have one. It's fine. As long as I know it's possible, like that's fine and I can stop. So I just think that psychology is really interesting. And I think, you know, some of us have addictive personalities. I know sometimes I can do that too, like work and other things. Like I'm very all or nothing. And so I just think it's really important to evaluate your relationship to alcohol. And if you feel like it's not helping your life, feel like you can make a change and it doesn't have to be like this big dramatic story that, you know, you've ruined your life and you have to give it up and, you know, you can just stop at any time. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really think it's important to share that, like, kind of like you're talking about the moderators and the different types of relationships. I'm so glad people are talking about that because that was not a conversation that long ago. It was more, it was very black and white. Like you're either an alcoholic who, who's lost everything or you're, or you're quote, okay. And we're starting to see there is a gray area. There is some nuance and the disparity between the two is actually what kept me from getting help for so long because I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm still going to work on time. I haven't lost my job. And, you know, I don't look like what an addict is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And but like, what the hell is an addict supposed to look like? <laughs> yeah, I've been reading so many articles about this gray area that you're talking about where it's like drinking might become a daily occurrence. You might not be able to stop at one, but you're still you know, able to go to work. You're still able to manage your relationships. But really, the focal point of your day or your thoughts are around alcohol, but it just hasn't messed up the rest of your life yet. And so you think, oh, I'm fine. And I think that can prevent a lot of people from seeking help. And I think 
even the term seeking help can mean a lot of different things. I think a lot of people just assume like, oh, I have to go to AA or I have to go to a 12 step program. It's like, not necessarily. There are a lot of different ways to get help. And so I'm curious, you know, when you realized that you wanted to get help or you needed to get help, do you go to AA? Did you just read books? Did you do it on your own? Or what was your version of seeking help? I did not go to AA. I've I've been to a handful of meetings and I definitely understand why it works for some people. It's a free support group. Like how amazing is that, you know? But it didn't, you know, the, a lot of the content didn't resonate with me. I did meet my boyfriend there though. So I guess I got what I needed Ooh. out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I got sober and I would not recommend this to anyone. I got sober by blogging about it. <laughs> and I, it was my form of accountability where I was like, okay, I'm not going to drink for a year and I'm going to document it on my blog. He's like, you know, I'm a writer. So I'm always looking for things to do to write about them. So this was a perfect way to get me to write. And it, the, it held me accountable for staying sober for a year. So I did that and I shared my story, you know, through the blog, through Facebook, through social media. And I just like it took off and the story resonated with people. And, you know, I'm still blogging today on sobrietyparty.com. And, you know, it's then it's, it's turned into like a podcast and reading series and a documentary. And like, again, not anything I would recommend <laughs> <laughs> to someone who's but like, hey, it, it, it worked, but it worked, it worked for me. So I think, you know, to like bottom line that find some f- sort of accountability. So whether that means you know, for me, it was blogging for someone else. It can mean an AA meeting. It can mean, a, you know, there's all different types of support groups. Now there's smart recovery. There's women only groups. There's refuge recovery, which is a Buddhist recovery group. Like there, if you just look up recovery support groups, there's so many. And even online before everything moved to online, you know, there was like in the rooms.com, there's really good online support groups. If Because it's really hard to go into a room, like to drive up or, you know, New Yorker walk up, open the door and like sit among a group of people that you don't, you're not quite sure if you're one of them. So online meetings are so great for that. Yeah. I love that you shared that you blogged about getting sober and that's kind of how you stayed accountable because that was very similar to my debt payoff story. I started my blog, Dear Debt, in January 2013 as a way to keep myself accountable in the debt payoff process because I felt like I have to pay off the student loan debt. I'm so depressed about it and I don't know what to do. And that was the only way that I could try to turn it into something positive and to keep me productive. And then kind of similarly, it turned into this writing career and then also now this podcast and in different directions. And so I think, you know, whatever form of accountability you choose, find something that works for you. If you are an artist or, you know, creative writing or painting or journaling or whatever can be super productive. And I think, you know, as you're mentioning, you don't have to hit rock bottom to quote, seek help. You can seek help at any time if you feel like, you know what, this isn't really working for me anymore. Or like, I don't like the way I feel after I drink, or I don't like the way I behave after I drink, or I'm always worried about what I posted on social media or what texts I sent after I drank. You know, you can question your relationship at any time and you don't have to be a quote, full blown addict who's hit rock bottom and lost everything. And I think that's the kind of narrative that we need to break away from. And I'm so happy to see that people are talking more about this gray area, which I think so many people fall into. Absolutely. It's very common. I'm glad you're giving me the 
<laughs> ability to share that. Of course. Now let's talk about money. Yes. So as we know, drinking is very expensive. I know here in Los Angeles and also New York, cocktails can easily cost $15, $16. A cheap glass of wine is $10. And you know, even if you go to the store, you can obviously buy it at a more affordable price. But if you are drinking consistently every day or more than usual, it can really add up. So I'm just curious, how did drinking so much affect your financial life and your spending? And also I'm curious, how much did you spend and where were you spending money related to this habit? Like maybe tangentially, like I know, like if I'm hungover, I'll like Postmates, a greasy meal. And I'm like, wow, I just spent $30. You know, I'm just curious about that. Yeah. I mean, this is honestly one of my favorite topics because it's not enough. I love talking about money because it's taboo and like it shouldn't be. Yeah, right. Money is like why we're all here. Like, let's talk about it. So like I said, I was a, I was a bartender. So I was making so much cash, but I was somehow always broke. I was like, you know, I was, I'm from Texas. I'm from Waco, Texas. So like my rent was very cheap. It was very cheap to live there. My rent was, I think like $600 a month for a two bedroom, two bathroom by myself. Oh my gosh. I'm so <laughs> <You> jealous. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And I was making like three, $400 a night, several nights a week, but I was broke. I was like, what the hell, how am I broke? Cause I was, I was spending as much as, as fast as I was earning it. Uh, you know, after, after work, we would go out for drinks or drunken tacos at 3am or, you know, this random thing at CVS that I have to have right now, like just so many stupid things that I spent money on that like if if I had invested just even like 1% of what I was making back then, it would be pretty decent right now. And it's mind blowing. I wrote an article about this for The Temper where I did an, I actually did a financial breakdown of just ballpark how much I spent. And, you know, I did the math, like, you know, I spent X dollars a night, four nights a week going out for 10 years. And I've spent six figures on getting wasted, like six, six figures. Figures, yeah. In some places, you could buy a house with that. A nice house, like, or a really nice car, like, <laughs> yeah. could be a retirement nest egg too. A good start to that, totally. And all of the things, and like that money that that quote is just what I spent, like at bars. That doesn't include like, oh, going to so and so's house, got to pick up a handle of Jack. Or going to a concert and, and paying extra for really expensive beers. Like, that's just like normal drinking in Waco costs. So, like, people that were drinking in New York, like, wow, I can't even imagine that would be way higher. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many costs associated with drinking. And I know that drunk shopping is something that's become more popular online. You know, now that we have Amazon and one click shopping, it's like, I've heard from people who like joke about their drunk purchases, which is like, it's all funny. But like, you know, when you really think about it, you're like, wow, I'm literally just wasting money because I'm drunk. And I think this purchase is funny. Or now I'm getting $30 Postmates because I can't leave my bed because I'm so hungover. And something that I've realized is like, alcohol doesn't bring that much value to your life when you look at the costs. And, you know, like I said, I've considered myself like an Epicurean, like I'm a wine lover and a cocktail lover and I love all these fancy things. And like, I genuinely do love those things. And that's why like, I haven't like totally given up alcohol, but I'm like reevaluating my relationship and definitely want to lessen it and, or maybe just ditch it all together sooner rather than later. Cause it's not good for your mental health, which is what we're talking about here. But it's like, when you think about all of the costs, you're like, 
wow, it's really not adding that much value. And especially for someone like me who I've been a part of wine clubs, I've like made fancy cocktails. I've gone on like cocktail tours in New Orleans and New York. It's like, you know what? I've had my fun. I think I can kind of settle down. I kind of liken it to like, you know, those people who like go around, like run around the block a couple of times and they're like, oh, I'm going to settle down now and like be serious and like calm down. It's like, I kind of feel that way with alcohol. Like, you know, I've had my fun over the years. Like I've had some good times, but now it's like, I can settle down. I'm 35. I want to save for retirement. I don't want to ruin my health or my liver. And suddenly when you think about paying $15 for a cocktail and then you get a $50 bill at the end of the night and then the next morning you're like, wow, I feel like shit. And I wish I didn't do that. Or like, I didn't like how I behaved. You know, I think that's like when things start to just cost too much. And when we're talking about alcohol and spending, the cost isn't worth what you get out of it, right? Well, yeah. And just hearing you talk about that, it makes me also think about the opportunity cost of like, how many workouts did I miss because I was hungover? How many family vacations did I say no to so I could go to a girl's weekend in New Orleans? You know, like things like that, like things that you just can't get back. And it took me 10 years to get through college because I just couldn't focus on anything but getting wasted. So I mean, these are the things that are like, it's important to talk about the money, but it's also important to talk about like this real side effects that, you know, I'm still figuring out. I've been sober for a little over four years now. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm still making peace with those things that, you know, I'm talking about, like, I could have spent more time with my grandmothers that are no longer here. And, you know, like, you can't dwell on those things, but it's also being aware of how alcohol really did impact all these pockets of my life. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that the opportunity cost, because yeah, we're missing out on family time, friends time, also the productivity cost with working with like, you know, as you said, you're like, I never have time to write. And it's like, well, you're spending four hours, three to four times a week drinking. Like that could have been a part-time job of working on your own stuff. And so I think that's really important to consider too, is like, there's more than just the financial cost. There's also the emotional costs. You know, I know a lot of people end up fighting with their significant other if they're drinking. Obviously, drinking can impair your senses. And so you might end up doing some things that you might regret later. And so there's just so many ways that you end up paying for drinking. Well, yeah, I mean, think about like, I was just... <laughs> I was just thinking like relationships that I got into because they were based on alcohol, like long-term serious, like live-in relationships. And I look back on that now, I'm like, what? We had nothing in common except we liked Jack Daniels. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. I I am in a a newish, healthy relationship. And I was like, wow, this is so great that this relationship isn't based on drinking or sex. And he was like, excuse me? And I was like... (laughs) Yeah, I just realized that a lot of my relationships like were kind of held together because we drank together or we had sex and that was like the only thing keeping it together. And he was just like so mind blown because he's like a healthy person and has had healthy relationships. And I'm like, oh my God, I realized the level of dysfunction (laughs) that I've had. And like, here's the crazy thing. When you're living in that dysfunction, but you don't know any better, you think it's normal. Totally. Like not until this healthy relationship where I was like, oh, I think a lot of my relationships were based on drinking and sex. Because I don't really remember doing much else. (laughs) So, yeah. 
yeah, it can really impair your relationships. So definitely consider that. And, you know, moving on to the next question, thinking about kind of alcohol and mental health and addiction and mental health, often they go hand in hand. You know, I think a lot of people are dealing with undiagnosed mental health issues and they are self-medicating. I know before I got on my antidepressants and anti-anxiety, I was drinking more because I was self-medicating. And it wasn't until I got on the proper medication was I like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what I was doing. Um, I also think some people might not be dealing with mental health issues. They might just have an addictive personality or for whatever reason fall into addiction. But obviously it does affect their mental health because it goes both ways. Can you share how alcoholism and addiction affected your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. You know, addiction is a symptom. It's very rarely the the sole problem. It's a symptom of something much larger. Sure, there's people out there that just like like doing blow and then that like becomes their lifestyle. That <laughs> definitely happens. Yeah. But more often it's people that are self-medicating with, you know, personality disorders, mental health issues, mental illnesses, like that's the most common. And personally, you know, I was diagnosed with depression at like 14, 15, and I was on antidepressants and I had a really hard time finding the right dosage. It was really hard on me, but you know, it worked perfectly every time was weed. So I was like, fuck this. I am going to switch to weed and it solved all my problems. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so I approached alcohol with the same relationship and you know it's it's so crazy how you think these little decisions you make in your life how they really just domino into everything but it's depression and anxiety and i don't so much have my anxiety is more prominent now than depression it is i'm very anxious and living in new york probably doesn't help so it's it's really hard to be sober with you know a diagnosed mental health issue of anxiety because it's like i'm present all the time. And it is exhausting. Like, you know, just the thought of even just like, I would love to just be able to have a beer. I don't even want to get drunk. I would just love to be able to just have a beer and just like check out for like 20 minutes, you know, like I don't, that I, could, I can't do that anymore. And so it's, it's cyclical. Like then that makes my anxiety worse. And it's, it's hard. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've realized that Sometimes I drink out of anxiety. Like, you know, let's say I go to a party and like, I mean, I'm an extrovert, but obviously if I go to a party and I don't know anyone, it's like, oh, I feel kind of awkward. Like, let me have a drink. And, you know, so sometimes I'll have a drink out of anxiety. Like, let's take the edge off, so to speak. So alcohol or wine can be good for my anxiety. But then what I find is the next day, my depression is like 300 times worse. And so it's like, okay, like I just drank to try to calm myself down and like not be so anxious. But then now my depression is like a hundred times worse and I hate myself. And like, why did I do that? And so I think it's interesting to kind of be aware of how alcohol affects you. Like once I started to kind of reevaluate my relationship with alcohol these past couple of months, it's like, oh, like, yeah, I do tend to drink more when I'm anxious, which it does help in the short term. But in the long term, it makes my depression way worse. And I love what you said about like, you have to be present all the time because, you know, kind of reevaluating my relationship with alcohol again, one of the reasons why it's so attractive is because I am tired of myself sometimes. I think a lot of people end up doing drugs and alcohol because you can't take a vacation from yourself. 
you know how it's like when you've had too much of someone, you're like, hey, like I need some space. Like I'll talk to you a little bit later. And you're like, okay, bye. I'll, I'll come back to you in a few days. But it's like, you can't do that with yourself. And so you have to foster this amazing sense of self-love an amazing sense of self that you can deal with yourself 24 seven, where it's really, really hard because I mean, I know I've totally been there where I'm just like, I just want a vacation from myself and alcohol can give me a brief respite from that. And so, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's definitely something a lot of people are dealing with, especially if you're dealing with trauma, especially if you're in a bad relationship, especially if you are, dealing with a family that doesn't support you. I mean, we're all just trying to survive every single day. And a lot of people are using alcohol to cope with that. Yeah. And you're, you're not alone in that. Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm curious, like if someone is self-medicating through alcohol and feels like that is the only thing that can help their depression and anxiety, what advice would you give to them? If possible, find a therapist that I can't recommend therapy enough. There's nothing wrong with therapy. I think everyone should be in therapy. Yeah. Like it's, I think therapy was probably the best gift that I give myself every week. I mean, if, if you're self-medicating, it's like, and if you want to get, you know, I don't want to say get better. If you want to stop self-medicating or if you want to drink less, there's tons of resources out there. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Ruby Warrington's work, but she started a, a movement called Sober Curious that really stuck. People loved it. She wrote a book on it. She has a podcast. She was doing sober curious events in New York. And really it's just speaking to like, you know, that gray area, like we were talking about of people that are like, like you who are like, okay, I don't want to stop drinking forever, but I really want to, you know, understand my relationship with alcohol. Why do I drink in these scenarios? And she's really talking to those middle people that, that don't identify as an alcoholic and they're not you know, they still drink like, and no one's really touched that before. And if you're interested in, you know, if you are wanting to cut back or learn more about your drinking, look into Ruby Warrington's work. I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, looking back now, the term sober curious wasn't the thing when I started my blog, but that's definitely what it was, you know, like mm-hmm. I was yeah. like, oh, I'm going to alcohol for a year and learn about my relationship to booze. That's exactly what it is. And it's, I'm glad people like her are sharing those stories to speak to the people in the middle. Yeah, I think it's so important because like you said, we need to get away from this kind of black and white thinking and address this gray area, which I think many, many more people are in. And I think, you know, for people that are self-medicating through alcoholic, I've read some articles in the New York Times, like women who have stressful jobs just come home, automatically have two glasses of wine every night. And that's like they're normal, but not until they kind of stop and think like, huh, every night I come home and have two glasses of wine and that just seems normal. But why is that normal? Like, why do I feel the need to do that? And I think what's a problem or difficult sometimes is when you do start to look at your relationship with alcohol and and figure out why am I self-medicating? You have to deal with all that stuff underneath, which is why I totally recommend therapy as well. I've been in therapy for the past three years consistently, and it has completely saved and changed my life in so many different ways. And It's like, yeah, when you have to stop using alcohol as a coping mechanism and then you're left with everything that's underneath, that can be completely overwhelming and difficult to deal with on your own. So therapy is definitely great. And then also I think being able to to journal it out and, you know, just address your feelings and your thoughts around it. And I, I wanted to ask you, so 
how did you decide or how would you help others decide? Like if they wanted to be quote, sober curious and maybe significantly cut down on drinking, but maybe have the option to drink like when they travel or if they want to celebrate or just like, I absolutely cannot have another drink ever again. You know, it's the type of thing where it is so personal to each person. It's like, I don't even know how to give advice on that because I could only say what worked for me and what worked for me was committing to a year and telling, you know, maybe if a year is too overwhelming for you, you know, maybe try a month, maybe try a week. But, you know, like in the recovery community, we just say one day at a time, like I'm not drinking today and that's it. Because even still, like, I can't say I'm never going to drink again. How the hell, like, how would I know that? But I know I'm not drinking today, Mm -hmm. probably not going to drink tomorrow. Or it's like, you know, I'm okay, I'm not going to drink at this bachelorette party. I'm not going to drink at this New Year's Eve dinner. So like whatever, you know, it's like one thing at a time and don't get overwhelmed with like, oh my God, I'm never going to have champagne again. (laughs) You know, I would also also add like, if you're someone like questioning this, I'm like, why is alcohol so important to you that you're like grasping at straws to figure out ways to keep it in your life? I love that. Yeah. I think that's so important to be like, why am I struggling so much to give this up? Like what? goes along with that, you know? And I think for me, when I'm thinking about my relationship, like for me, it's like, oh, but I'm an Epicurean. I love to try different flavors and I love to drink the local things when I travel. And for me, that feels like a part of my identity is getting lost. If I were to say like, I'm never touching alcohol ever again. But I think you also have to think about like, what are you gaining and how else can you get those things from different things? With like, okay, I like different tastes and different flavors. I can bake, I can drink different types of tea. You know, I like the kind of culture and historical aspects of learning about different wines and cocktails. Okay. I can pick up a history book. You know, there are different ways that I can kind of manifest the things that I like about drinking in different ways. And that's something that I've been exploring as well. Like, okay, what are the things that I actually like about drinking? How can I manifest that in different ways? So baking, drinking tea, picking up a history book and learning cultural stuff that way, or like mood wise, when do I drink? I drink when I'm anxious. What can I do? Meditate. I drink when I'm stressed out. What can I do? Box. I drink because I feel like I don't know what to do. Pick up a book, you know, having these kind of replacement behaviors and retraining your mind. Cause I think so many people just go to the bottle almost like out of mindless consumption, because that's kind of what we've been doing in our twenties and thirties and no one questions it at all. Yeah, it, uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's all about replacing the behavior. And when you think about it, like unless you are physically addicted to alcohol, not drinking is easy. You just don't do it. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I know that sounds really like simplistic, but like you just don't do it. Yeah. And and obviously I have four years of sobriety under my belt, so I can say it's easy. It's not, I mean sobriety is so freaking hard y'all like i'm not minimizing that i'm saying the act of abstaining can be easy yeah totally and i I love that you mentioned earlier about one day at a time because i think it is overwhelming for people to just like say like oh i'm never gonna have a drop of alcohol ever again i know that's difficult for me to accept but you know i have done dry january for three years in a row and it's such a great time to be like you know what i can do a month And then throughout that month, you're like, huh, I'm sleeping better. Or like, 
I'm less moody or my depression isn't as bad. And so even just like committing to something like dry January, which I think is gaining in popularity can be a good kind of reboot. And then, yeah, like it's up to your time frame. Maybe like you try to commit to a year, do dry January, maybe try 60 days, you know, just try every single day. Like today, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink every day. You can have a choice. And I think, you know, whatever choice you make, we all have to live with that. And I think something that I struggle with too, is sometimes like if I do end up drinking, I like, oh, I, I'm disappointed in myself. It's like, you know what? Beating myself up doesn't help. So it's like, I made that choice. Tomorrow's a new day and tomorrow I'm not going to drink. There's also like this balance of like, you know, you drink, you hate yourself, you hate yourself. So you want to drink more and it like gets into this cycle, right? Totally. So I'm so curious How has your mental health and financial health changed since being in recovery? Exponentially improved. (laughs) You know, mental health, I'm aside from, you know, like you're saying, can't take a vacation from myself anymore. (laughs) You know, finding other tools. Uh, You know, meditation has been, I have such a love-hate relationship with meditation. Like, I don't even want to tell people that they should meditate because I hate it so much. But then I do it and I'm like, oh yeah, this kind of works. And just feeling my feelings, that might sound silly, but I've been self-medicating. I was self-medicating for, I don't like 14, 15 years. So a lot of things are still really new for me. You know, like they say when you get sober or how is it? It's like the year you started self-medicating, you stopped maturing in a certain way. So like I started self-medicating at like 14, 15. So when I got sober at 29, I somewhat had the emotional maturity of a 14, 15 year old because I never really learned how to process life. So yeah, I know that's like mind blowing, right? So thinking about that now, so like now I have four years of sobriety. So I'm like 19, (laughs) you know, but I'm really 34. Um, But like, it, it makes sense though, because I do behave in immature ways at times. And it's because I'm still learning how to process grief or death or a breakup or, you know, anxiety, losing a job, like these things that I would just drink through in order to quote, deal with it. Now, if something big happens, I have to actually feel it and process it. And it's really hard. And financially, I learned that I, (laughs) I learned that I don't, I did not know anything about money other than how to spend it. Like, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how to invest. I didn't know how to save. I didn't know how to make a budget. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. And it's the kind of thing where you have to want to learn. So I started to take some finance classes, following finance accounts on Instagram, just because I wanted to learn. I, I wanted to learn how to be more in control of my money. And it's only helped. You know, it's still like a foreign language that I don't speak, but I can kind of grasp onto parts of it, but it's better than before. Yeah. And now you have more money because you're not spending it on alcohol and things that come along with drinking. Oh yeah. It's like, it's wild how much more money I have because I'm like, I feel rich. Wow. (laughs) It's crazy. Like I'm able to, I can like buy a round of, you know, coffees or teas for a group of friends or like I can pay for dinner sometimes like things like that, that I didn't have that 
I had the money to do it back then, but I just <laughs> I didn't know how to be a, a, a decent human being. And but you know, and then it's also learning what to splurge on. You know, I still like my big ticket items are still concerts, Broadway shows, live entertainment, things like that. Those are how you know having the luxury of uh, a surplus of money and time. I'm able to do those things that I really love. I love that. I have a friend who uh, stopped drinking because she was just like, this isn't really adding value to my life anymore. And similar, you know, she didn't necessarily have a huge problem. She was just like, eh, this really isn't, you know, adding to my lifestyle. And she's like, I feel so rich. And just like the amount of money, like, yeah, you can now travel, you can now do this, you can now do that. And having money that can bring you joy and give you more lasting experiences and memories than, you know, one kind of drunken night where you're like, huh, I'm not even sure what happened. Like, I hope I didn't embarrass myself. <laughs> like, you know, that's really about what life is about. And I think that is so amazing. And I love, I love your story. Um, I'm curious. So for people or, or for yourself, you know, when you've had really difficult moments and I've had to feel your feelings, so to speak, and let's say you've been tempted because having a drink sounds really amazing. Like, how do you deal with those moments where the temptation feels so overwhelming and it just seems like the best thing you could possibly do, but you know that it is not going to be good for you? How do you kind of get out of that mindset and how do you change your behavior to stick to the plan? It's a great question. You know, reaching out to someone that understands is huge. You know, in, in the AA world, that's what your sponsor does. I don't, I don't have a sponsor, but I have a lot of people in my life that are in recovery and I pick up the phone and call or text or, you know, my boyfriend's sober, you know, I talk to him about it and he's, you know, he speaks that language of recovery. And so we help each other out with that. And, you know, journaling, just like getting it out, writing out, writing it. But it's like, honestly, like this is, (laughs) is not very fun, but like, Sometimes you just have to sit in that feeling and just really feel it. Like no scrolling through your phone, no Netflix binge. Like you have to just sit there and feel it and cry. Yeah. I think because so many people do self-medicate as a way to kind of take the edge off and, you know, minimize their feelings, that part can feel so overwhelming. And like you said, it's like learning a different language and being able to kind of sit there. And I think, that's something that we can all learn to practice, whether we're learning or trying to drink less or not. Like, how can we sit still and how can we sit in our feelings? Because sometimes, like, whenever I'm just scrolling mindlessly, I'm like, what am I trying to avoid here? <laughs> because if I'm just like laid in bed, scrolling, 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 not really doing anything, I'm clearly just avoiding something. This isn't bringing value into my life. And so I think having those questions but why am I doing this and how can I really sit with my feelings and sit in stillness? Like we're not taught to deal with our feelings. We're not taught to sit in stillness. And I think that is something that can provide so much clarity in our life. If we allow ourselves to do that. Yeah, for sure. It's hard. Yeah. So if someone feels like they have a problem with alcohol, what are some resources that you recommend for them to get help? Yeah. There's so many options right now. With social media and with the internet, you can head to my website, sobrietyparty.com. I have a resources page with a list of multiple recovery groups, different kind of podcasts you can listen to, different books you can read. There's so many recovery memoirs that just really helped me through this. 
I mean, again, find a therapist. Like you can read all the books, you could listen to all the podcasts, you could read all the blogs, but at the end of the day, it's it's your shit and you have to you have to do the work. <laughs> you have to figure out what you need and what that work is. And if you have the privilege of having a good health insurance or a good therapist, like I can't recommend that enough. And if you don't, support groups are 100% free and you will meet lots of people that are just like you who also thought, I don't need a support group. I'm fine. You know, like there's nothing wrong with the support group. Yeah. We all need support in different ways. And I think whether it's through AA or through something else, I think getting help is the key. And I'm glad you mentioned that there are other things besides AA because yes, AA can help a lot of people, but I know some people have problems with kind of the 12 step modality and the higher power sort of language and whatnot. So I think knowing that there are other options, there's not just like one definitive support group or way to kind of get help. And there are, you know, with the internet and podcasts and books, there's never a better time to find more information and reach out. Absolutely. You can just log into Instagram and type hashtag sober. You're going to be like, holy shit, there's like a <laughs> lot of people talking about this. I'm not alone. Yes. Like, yes. It's, it's wild. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was such a great conversation. I think it was so juicy and hopefully it will help a lot of our listeners. Where can people find you? Thank you for having me. My social media is Tawny M. Lara, T-A-W-N-Y-M-L-A-R-A. Website, TawnyLara.com. And my blog that you know started this whole thing is Sobriety Party, Sobriety E-A. And I have a, a podcast called Recovery Rocks with my co-host, Lisa Smith, where we talk about recovery and rock and roll. Oh, I love it. I'm going to take a listen. I'm excited. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.